Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's Flint briefing call on the situation in Ukraine. I'm Simon Fraser, managing partner at Flint, former head of the UK Foreign Office, and I'm in the chair again. Uh, I'm joined, as usual, uh, on these calls by Sir Julian King, uh, the former UK EU Commissioner. And this week, we're joined by Giles Wilkes, the former Economic and Industrial Strategy Advisor to Theresa May, and by Thomas Matusek, former German Ambassador to the UK and the UN. This call is going to last uh, less than 30 minutes, and we're going to use it to look at the main developments of the last week and then consider the emerging implications of this crisis for the UK economy uh, and also to look at Germany's extraordinary response to the crisis across defence, energy and diplomacy. Germany, of course, being a key player in determining the EU's position. The conflict has ended its third week uh, with serious humanitarian and political consequences. In Europe, much of the focus in the last week has been on managing the growing refugee crisis and on interventions to restrict Russian oil and gas exports uh, and the great economic cost that this implies. Uh, indeed, the economic fallout is becoming more evident now as we look at the measures that have been taken and more major international companies are leaving Russia. As things stand, all the signs point to a prolonged crisis this crisis is still escalating. That's an important point for us to note. There are negotiations, limited negotiations going on alongside the military operations, but neither appears anywhere near close to the end game at the moment. And Russia is still facing stiff resistance on the ground and is only able to make gradual gains. A very quick update on the events of yesterday before we kick off. Um, Yesterday, the UN verified 500 civilian fatalities in the war. That is probably a great underestimate of the real number. Uh, President Putin warned international companies that his government would nationalize their operations if they pull out of Russia and people are absorbing uh, what that means. Uh, talks in Turkey yesterday between the Ukrainian and the Russian foreign ministers brought no significant progress or respite to the conflict. There was no agreement on a ceasefire or humanitarian aid for besieged cities such as Mariupol. Mariupol is in a grave situation, uh, running out of power, food and water. Uh, an informal two-day EU summit began yesterday in Versailles, and we'll pick that up during our conversation. And of course, the UK yesterday sanctioned seven more oligarchs, including Roman Abramovich. So that's a quick update on the situation. Let's move to you now, Julian. Um, could you give us your view on what you see as the most significant developments last week, the lessons that we should be taking from them? Have we learned more about where the conflict is heading, potential end games, and the consequences in Ukraine, Russia, and more widely? Well, thanks, Simon. Uh, good morning. Uh, as, as you say, uh, it looks like this is a set to be a protracted conflict, and in the short term, at least, uh, escalation looks more likely than uh, political settlement. I mean, Russia and Ukraine are talking, but they're talking past each other. Uh, and most of Russia's asks uh, cross Ukraine's uh, red lines or are very difficult on Crimea, uh, recognition of the breakaway republics, uh, amendments to Ukraine's constitution to, to enforce neutrality. Uh, but although the 
Russian military, as you say, has been less successful than uh, expected, at least in the north. In the end, it's hard to imagine that Russia can't uh, prevail militarily in some form eventually. Uh, but even that wouldn't mean the end of fighting. Russia would face a tough insurgency armed by the West that's going to generate ongoing instability for, for the whole region. And meanwhile, Russia's tactics are becoming increasingly brutal. Uh, they've used vacuum bombs. There's uh, increased um, concern overnight uh, about the possible resort to chemical or biological weapons, which, of course, would be a major uh, escalation. Uh, and there's still a possibility of the war spreading uh, beyond, beyond Ukraine. Uh, we're not assessing that as likely. Uh, the West, the US want to avoid that. They've made that clear. But missteps can happen. Uh, and Putin, if cornered, uh, could, could well uh, lash out. Uh, the West's response to uh, the Russian aggression has been, I think most people would say, uh, impressive, well-coordinated, decisive. The only real wobble we've seen uh, this last week uh, was confusion about the Poland-US aircraft swap, swap the jets to Ukraine. West has shown it's willing to pay an economic price. Ukraine continues to win the information war. I think Zelensky's address to uh, the UK parliament this week was, was particularly powerful. Um, against all that background, sanctions are, are going to remain in place for some time. In fact, it's difficult to see the West welcoming a Putin-led Russia back into our supply chains and financial system, at least not to the same degree as long as, as he's there. Uh, and that's obviously going to have implications. You, you mentioned energy. We'll talk about it a bit more. That's been a big story. Uh, longer term, reducing energy dependency on Russia has big economic and political implications. Uh, we've been looking at those for clients as well as implications for financial services, food, commodities, tech, telecoms, transport, other sectors, and, and we'll keep doing that. Uh, but all the signs really point to Russia becoming uh, economically more isolated and to a degree more dependent on, on China. Uh, I mean, doing business with and in Russia is, is getting more difficult, is going to get even more difficult. Uh, you've got the sanctions on, you've got the various sanctions, including the sanctions on the, the central bank. You've got Putin proposing nationalizations now, the market's effectively frozen, all of that leading to significant write downs. Uh, I mentioned China. I think we've seen a shift, a slight shift in tone uh, over this week in Russia's favor. Uh, China confirmed it would continue to purchase oil and gas from Russia, repeated earlier claims that unilateral sanctions are illegal in their view. But at the same time, I mean, they're trying to nuance. Uh, China said it would deliver uh, a considerable amount of humanitarian supplies to Ukraine. Uh, and that uh, is important. We mustn't forget the humanitarian dimension of all of this. Over two million people have left Ukraine already. Uh, and the UN bodies estimate that that number is likely to climb to perhaps four million, perhaps more than that. Humanitarian corridors are discussed, but, but not really observed. After all, this is a human tragedy that we're dealing with. Simon. Okay, thank you very much, Julian. That was a, that was a very good summary. Thanks, raises a lot of important issues. Um, Giles, I'd like to turn to you now, if I may. I mean, as the British and international response develops here and the sanctions are in place, 
Um, are we now able to begin to see what the broader uh, and longer term effects of sanctions and this conflict are likely to be for the UK economy, an economy which is also already facing significant challenges. How is it going to affect the cost of living crisis, consumers, and indeed the wider priorities of the government's economic and policy agendas? Thank you, Simon. Um, I mean, first of all, we've become dismayingly familiar with being hit by an economic shock in the UK ever since the, the turn of the century, notably the financial crisis, but the shock after 9-11 and obviously the COVID pandemic. I, I have to say that this one, though, is particularly nasty in that all of those earlier shocks were largely to the demand side and the government's correct response was generally to put more demand in and support people. This is a supply side shock, a savage one, which, as you say, builds on a lot of the um, trends that were going on before. And so um, it was already hitting its limits, the economy. And now the energy bills and the rising commodity prices are going to hit even more at a time when all of the policymakers were trying to work out how to get the, the demand in the economy down in order to not burst through the inflationary limits. So just in the last few days, new higher energy bills are hitting the doormat and they're going to rise even more in October. The shocking um, rise I saw yesterday myself, I know that it's only a third of the way through. Whereas a very high inflation might be led by energy, but it is going to be spread across a wider range of affected items. And there will then be second order effects on confidence and other affected industries. So this will hurt everybody. We heard confirmation from a prominent think tank yesterday that real earnings are already falling. And there's a, this new sense we can't really tell where the top is going to be. And that's going to knock on to confidence and demand. I mean, you asked how large this might be. As I said, recent recessions are not a useful guide for how this will, one will play out. I think we probably have to go back to the um, oil shock of the early 70s following the Yom Kippur War, when thanks to action by OPEC, we saw oil price tripled and the UK economy went from another sort of boom period of growth of four or so percent to negative three percent. Now, on the plus side, that economy was about three times as hydrocarbon dependent as we're now, which is why I think most of the economic forecasts are looking more like a hit to GDP of one to two percent on top of what was otherwise expected to be a reasonably good recovery. So the UK economy would still grow, but much less and would see a lot more inflation. But there were plenty of factors further confusing things against um, so there was the, the fact that we already had this strong, unprecedented bounce back from the COVID pandemic. We were expecting fully open service sectors, tight labour markets, a wall of household savings from all of those COVID support schemes. So the bank was already trying to work out how to tighten policy, despite the longer term effects of this kind of a, um, these kind of supply shocks being bad for demand. An incredibly difficult uh, decision, which we'll discuss more later. Um, and you asked about the cost of living explicitly. Well, to put some numbers on it, energy prices are the key driver. The price cap that was brought in by Theresa May provides some stability. So we know, for example, that prices are rising for the typical household by about £600 in April. And on the basis of current energy markets, we can speculate that uh, another £1,000 in October. So this is on top of a figure that would normally be £1,300. We're going to be touching on £3,000. But similar size effects are penciled in from rises in national insurance and um, freezes in the income tax threshold. And there's that tightening interest rate cycle, which will hit mortgage holders. So altogether, it's easy to say that it's going to be the worst year for disposable incomes in uh, many decades. 
but there are plenty of uncertainties. Consumer confidence reaction is going to be very hard to gauge. Some of the more bearish commentators think that consumers will cut their spending by more than their hit in real income. Business investment in what was meant to be a strong year might be badly hit as people do not know when they're going to be paid back. There's all sorts of unknowns before we even consider the inherent uncertainty of the conflict itself. And when you ask about government priorities, well, the Treasury brain that looks at the economics of things will be in conflict with retail politics, which demands that you help people who are suffering, Polity, poverty alleviation measures, in other words. So calls for intervention are certainly going to grow very hard and be resisted by the Treasury behind the scenes on the basis of efficiency and affordability. And the Treasury will argue that there's pressure on all budgets because of higher inflation. Everyone's taking a real terms hit, every budget is. For example, the NHS's rise in money is no longer as meaningful in real terms as it was before. So that, that argument is going to be played out against the backdrop of people reconsidering energy independence and defence budget tasks, all adding long-term pressure to the budget. Thank you, Simon. Uh, your analysis was excellent there. But uh, the question then is, what can the government and other actors like the Bank of England, the policymakers, do to soften this blow? I mean, will we see significant policy shifts on taxation, net zero, borrowing, interest rates, etc.? Well, the upshot of this being a crisis of supply is there's not very much short-term action that the UK government can take to alleviate the position of the country as a whole. The basic price of the items the UK needs, a lot of them imported, have soared, which means we're basically poorer. So government policy is about trying to work at who should take the, um, the pain the most. And short of expropriating the sellers of those items, which is a terrible idea for our business environment, although gaining some popularity in parts of politics, the cost has to be borne somewhere. Now, so the government is likely to be paying the most anxious attention to how the blow falls on the poorest households and taking steps to soften it for them. So through energy bills, Rishi Sunak had a package out earlier this year that now looks sadly inadequate. And so there will now be further pressure to help those people, pressure to reduce taxes, pressure to postpone those tax rises I mentioned earlier. But although this year, the Treasury's revenues have outperformed forecasts, they will be aware that interest costs and a lot of costs linked to inflation are taking a step change upwards too. And those long-term pressures on other, on other budgets, public sector pay in general, the Ministry of Defence, um, they're going to be trying to resist every kind of increase in the fiscal deficit. Also, for macroeconomic reasons, if all, any more money they put into people's pockets will merely pile pressure onto the Bank of England to raise rates itself. And on that subject, this is a terrible dilemma for the um, MPC at the Bank of England, the decision-making body. In their way of thinking, there are real risks to accommodating price rise shocks, which is what slowing the pace of rate rises would mean. If these kind of price rises don't demand a response, what does? And accommodating every external shock risks leading wage and price setters to expect or demand further rises in future, and inflation developing an internal drive of its own that will outlast these shocks. The critical question is whether they think that the UK economy as a whole sees this as a passing episode or a shift to a new paradigm. And given the kicking that Team Transitory has taken in the last year, the latter must be becoming much more compelling. I mean, on particular borrowing uh, policy areas, net zero, I'm actually mildly, mildly confident, let's call it 60% probability, the UK is going to stay the course resolutely or even to go further for several reasons. The first, it's a popular thing to do. People like this if you poll them. 
Two, it makes more sense long term, whereas an outright push for more oil and gas extraction risks being very horribly timed for the cycle and you invest just as the prices are falling again. And three, more drilling doesn't actually make much sense um, in that it doesn't cut prices. We're not a big enough player on any scale, so we'll still be paying high prices for our hydrocarbons, even if we drill more. Finally, borrowing it's going to rise in my opinion relative to previous expectations fiscal borrowing has to rise by a process of elimination you might say it's hard to see taxes rising significantly above forecast or the government finding any new spending cuts so all the pressure is going to go on borrowing back to you simon yeah, thank you very much giles some really significant dilemmas for policymakers to fa facing months ahead We'll come back and think about those in more detail in future discussions. Let's shift our focus now to Germany and the EU uh, and back more towards the issues directly relating to Ukraine. Uh, Thomas, I mean, Germany is a major player in the EU on this crisis, the largest importer of Russian gas and oil in the EU. We've seen dramatic changes in German policy on Nord Stream, on defence spending, on the supply of arms. Um, tell us a bit about how this is going down in Germany. Is there unity behind the position Chancellor Scholz has taken? Uh, how do you interpret that? Well, thank you, Simon. Yes, um, after the attack on the 24th, the German government did a complete turnaround in its 30-year-old Friedenspolitik, peace policy, which basically means soft on Russia, weak on defense. In the face of that aggression, Scholz ruled out to put the Nord Stream 2 pipeline into operation, even though it's totally finished. At the same time, he announced a 100 billion package to strengthen the armed forces and to meet for the first time the 2% GDP target of NATO for the years to come. He announced weapon deliveries to Ukraine, which was a no-no before. He joined all the sanctions of NATO and EU against Russia. And this was supported by the opposition in parliament, the CDU, CSU, and most of the other parties, and by the overwhelming majority of public opinion. And you could say probably only a red-green government could have pulled it off in such an abrupt way, um, similar to the red-green government of Schroeder and Fischer in 98, which for the first time sent combat troops to Kosovo. Now, dependence. Germany, which is dependent on Russian gas by 55%, Russian oil by 35%, Russian coal by 45%, is of course therefore still against a total embargo. And the shortage of energy has to be made up somehow. It has to be made up by imported LNG, via the Netherlands, as Germany does not have any LNG terminals yet, by purchases of gas from Norway, Netherlands, Azerbaijan, Algeria, etc., by purchases of coal on the world market, and a special point, the ministries, the green-run ministries of economics and environment are very reluctant to keep the remaining three nuclear reactors, which are supposed to be switched off by the end of the year, as decided by the Merkel government after Fukushima, to keep them operational. Germany has influenced the EU decision to limit the swift exclusion of Russian or Russian banks so that Germany can pay its energy bills in the future and will not provide a pretext to Russia for switching the gas delivery off altogether. Germany is also reluctant to support the 200 billion energy package proposed by the Commission. 
Back to you, Simon. So, so thank you very much, Thomas. So what we're getting here is a picture of you know, significant shifts in German policy, but still some issues of difference and some real, you know, political and economic problems for Germany arising from the from the shift, particularly on on energy. Uh, issues. So, so come, let's come back to you then and explore that a bit more, Julian uh, and then Thomas. I mean, what about the EU more generally? We've got this informal summit that started yesterday. It's continuing today. The Commission has put forward ideas. Uh, how has the crisis affected the role of the Commission and other key players, the Franco-German partnership, the behaviour of Poland and Hungary, the position of the Baltic states? I mean, there are many moving parts in the EU. Could you give us a in our final section, a quick overview of that. Well, sure, Simon. As you say, the uh, EU uh, heads of government are meeting in um, uh, splendid surroundings in Versailles, uh, uh, and the French presidency uh, is in the chair. Uh, on the back of, of this crisis and the, the sea change in Germany's position that Thomas has just described, uh, and with the support of the Commission, uh, they are looking to strengthen uh, the EU's resilience and, uh, they would say, independence in a number of key areas, uh, in uh, developing critical sectors of the economy, uh, ending uh, energy dependence, uh, reinforcing defence cooperation. I mean, Russia's behaviour has, has shifted views in, in their favour, not just in, in Germany. Uh, some of the previously sceptical voices in, in Central Europe uh, and Eastern Europe uh, and the Nordics have, have, have changed position. But uh, there remain big questions about how far and how fast the EU can get out of Russian energy and about how much and how the EU uh, will pay for its ambitions. Just before I come back to that, it's worth saying on defence that the crisis has also strengthened relations between the EU and NATO. Uh, I mean, Russia's actions uh, inevitably raise questions for those EU members that are that are not part of NATO, countries like Finland and, and Sweden. Uh, Sweden has announced it will increase defence spending to 2% of GDP. And as people will have seen, uh, polling in Finland and Sweden has shown uh, quite a sharp swing in support of a closer links, possibly membership of, of NATO. But on funding. Uh, which is one of the, the, the subjects that's being discussed in Versailles. Uh, Thomas will, will want to talk about this. Uh, the, the French are pushing for more investment uh, on, on energy, defence, some critical areas of, of, of the economy. Uh, and the question is, how, how might that be funded? Uh, there the could be, obviously, uh, changes in the rules to allow uh, more flexibility in, in, in national funding and to encourage uh, more private sector investment. Uh, but there's a big debate about the degree to which uh, common collective funding might be used across Europe. Uh, ca can that be uh, existing money, uh, uh, redirected, reprioritized? Or as, as some, including the French, would like, uh, could we have new, um, uh, new collective uh, loans? Uh, that, I think, is subject of, of some contention, including in Germany, Thomas. So what do you think of the prospects? Well, uh, Julian, um, in his opposition to total embargo and uh, in his scepticism to this um, additional uh, uh, energy uh, package, which you mentioned, um, Scholz is still in good company. He's not isolated yet. 
and I expect, therefore, that he will hold out until and unless the situation in Ukraine gets much uglier. For, for the time being, unity holds. A total embargo, of course, will inflict, especially in Germany, a lot of increased pain. Experts talk about up to 10% inflation, just as an example. Um, but there are important voices throughout the political spectrum in Germany who say the unity is worth this price to pay. So in the end, it will depend how the situation on the ground develops and how much the pain will be accepted by a public which feels an enormous empathy to the people of Ukraine. Back to you, son. Okay, thank you both very much. Thank you also, Giles. We'll draw the call to a close there. I mean, things can continue to move. Today, with the EU summit will conclude. G7 agriculture ministers are, are due to meet soon. There are many events uh, ahead in the next week, so we will continue regular updates every day, every 24 or 48 hours. And alongside them, we've been doing a series of deep dives on key issues. We've done them on energy this week and on the impact on the freight sector. Uh, and next, we'll be looking at the implications for agriculture and on the investment environment. So we will be producing uh, analysis of that uh, in the week, in the days ahead. And, uh, and finally, if anybody wants a tailored discussion, seminar or briefing with Flint Expert team, please do let us know. Thank you very much for joining this. Have a good weekend. Goodbye.